Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Hoffman. Mark Magnus and Riley Smith will be joining us later on in the program, as will Russ Parker a little later on with his faith-based Food for Thought. But right now, let's go ahead and run down some of those headlines. Well, we did see widespread scattered showers throughout the state here through the week. I know in Des Moines proper, we range anywhere from an inch and a quarter to about an inch and a half of rain. Now, farmers are welcoming the rain as a way to replenish the moisture and maybe just finish up the last little bit of pod fill on beans. But otherwise, it may be a little more of a frustration as now we're trying to get the crops out of the ground after a stressful year. That will remain to be seen how much effect this is going to have going forward. Elsewhere, since being named the home of Iowa's best burger for 2023, Flight Bar and Grill in Huxley has been serving a record number of burgers while contributing thousands of dollars to the Ballard Education Foundation. According to Matt Pacho, who owns the restaurant with his wife, Marianne, he said overall the restaurant sales have doubled since winning the contest. In May, after the announcement, they sold 5,000 Foundation burgers. Before receiving the honor, the most they ever sold in a month was 859. The highly coveted burger is a double smash burger with cheddar cheese and includes mustard aioli, lettuce, tomato, caramelized onions, and is topped with thick-cut bacon served on a brioche bun. For every burger sold, the grill donates $1 to the Ballard Education Foundation. In fact, the foundation was the inspiration for the burger's name, and this donation structure has been placed since they opened the flight in 2022. Elsewhere in farm news, well, the farm bill is has a deadline of next Saturday to be completed, and as of right now, not only does it look like they're not going to get it done by next week, but we'll be lucky if they get it done within the next year. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst talks about the gridlock that is locking down many of the programs that need to get through, and she says she's not feeling optimistic at all about the future of the Farm Bill. Yeah, this has been very frustrating, Dustin, and I think it's it's being felt across uh, the parties. It's being felt uh, across the rotunda here in the Capitol building. And we're uncertain right now the path forward. Of course, uh, with the farm programs, what we'll hope to do then is have extenders that will carry us on until we can actually get the farm bill done. Um, I would hope that we could get the farm bill done the early part of this next year. But if it turns to a point where it doesn't look like that's going to happen, it could be that we end up in a one-year extension for the farm bill. Um, We certainly don't want that. We've got a lot of really great programs and improvements that we would like to see in this year's farm bill, but it really is an uncertain future right now. The senator says that right now the high priority is the spending bill and the yearly fiscal activity of the Congress. And she says it's important that that bill moves forward, even though right now appropriations portions of the bill are heading back to subcommittees, which could slow things down even further. Well, it it is because we are spending a lot of our time on the floor focused on appropriations activities. That has pretty well stalled. Um, here in the Senate, at least for the time being, while a number of the members are working out various issues that they have with the appropriations bills. Of course, we have to wait for the House to act as well when it comes to appropriations bills, and they need to start sending more of those bills over. So we are looking at a potential continuing resolution when it comes to federal government spending. And if we cannot get a continuing resolution, then we are being faced with a government shutdown, which we know is not good 
for anyone. Um, so uh, yes, there are issues uh, coming up with the spending bills. And of course, then that does slow down the other work that we do, whether it's on the farm bill, whether it's on FAA reauthorization, a number of other important pieces of legislation. That again was Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. We did get some yield results across Iowa, and right now that variability from what the combines are seeing across much of the state, including northwest parts of the state. Clayton Christensen is a fourth-generation farmer up in Spencer, and he talked about what's going on at his farm right now. Choppings went really well so far this year. Haven't had too many uh, breakdowns or anything that's really held us up too much, and the weather's been pretty good for us. It was warm a couple days, but... Uh, you know, we, uh, I guess this year we had a new John Deere chopper new to us and we were able to get some um, yield that off it. So it looked like some of our stuff was close to 30 ton an acre and um, on some of the drier stuff, maybe 26 to 28. But uh, it's cool to have that data. And that is Clayton Christensen of Spencer, Iowa. You can find all our content online at iowaagnet.com. That's going to do it for me here in segment one of Weekend Ag Matters. It's time to kick things over now to Russ Parker, who's standing by with his weekly faith-based food for thought here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. For those of us on the right side of our dash, we find ourselves in the time of transition in this circle of life. In my own life, being much closer to the 70 number, there are aging people in my life, and while I know this wheel has turned for many throughout the ages of time, nonetheless, the Lord has presented this time to me according to his plan. But to this end, I would like to share a little bit about my father-in-law and hopefully offer a few takeaways that will resonate with others who have one too. I have been blessed beyond measure to be part of his life. He raised, in particular, a woman who has stuck with me through the good times and the challenges. He's an engineer by trade, a place for everything and everything in its place. He even hoses down his entire push mower after every use, outside and underneath. I put my tools away. He put three of his kids through private school as the sole breadwinner, working a desk job. While he made sure the family took a vacation every year, every penny he brought home had a purpose. I have embraced his lessons of stewardship. College baseball and football. Seasoned ticket holder to the College World Series. He never missed a game for years. And a huge Nebraska Cornhuskers fan. I recall buying a TV just so he could watch the game at our house while it was under construction. Now, I don't cheer for Nebraska, but I'm reminded of my father-in-law every game they play. My mother told me the other day that we are on this earth because God has a purpose for each one of us each day. Especially in the process of dying, it might be hard for those of us who are living to understand what that purpose is. But the good Lord knows, and for those left behind, our faith and metal is tested according to the Lord's plan. And the good news is that of his promise that we read in John 14. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, you may be also. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thank you, Russ. And that's going to do it here for segment one of Weekend Ag Matters. We've got lots more to come. Mark Magnuson will be joining us next here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Whether you're a Cyclone or Hawkeye football fan, we can all root for biodiesel this season. Made from soybeans grown right here in Iowa, biodiesel helps improve the air we breathe, gives consumers choice at the pump, and supports the farmers who make it possible. This clean burning fuel even powers the game day buses for the Iowa and Iowa State football teams. So whether you're on the field or in the field, make the play of the game by choosing biodiesel as your fuel of choice. This message was brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association, powered by the Soybean Checkoff, driven to deliver for Iowa soybean farmers. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Hello and welcome to segment number two of Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Today I bring you a conversation with Dan Poston of Pivot Bio. I had the chance to speak with Dan at the Farm Progress Show in Decatur, Illinois, about the benefits of Pivot Bio's microbial nitrogen compared to traditional nitrogen application. We also spoke about the on-field testing and results from a study by Iowa State University. Mark Magnuson for the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, and I'm here today at Pivot Bio at Farm Progress 2023, and I'm with Dan Poston. Dan, thanks for joining us. Could you tell us, please, what your job duties are at Pivot Bio and what your job title is? Well, um, my job title is Vice President of Field Research and Development. But to simplify that, uh, basically, when our microbes leave the lab and greenhouse, uh, my team is in charge of both early, mid, and late stage field testing of all those microbes. And Dan, today you gave a very interesting talk here at the Pivot Bio exhibit, and you were talking about the benefits of the microbial nitrogen. And you started off your talk in saying that it's difficult to know exactly how much nitrogen to apply. Could you expand on that a little bit, please? Uh, sure. Um, the, the response to nitrogen is a pretty consistent plant response, but the the magnitude of response is always dependent upon environmental conditions. Um, the more loss you have, the more nitrogen you need. So you may have some years where you can grow 250 bushel corn with 60, 80 units of nitrogen. And then you have another year or positions in the field, places in the field that require 250 units to still grow the same 250 bushels of corn. So you never know what the conditions are going to be uh, going into the season. So the result is farmers always apply on the very high end to make sure that they don't lose yield potential. So that means most years they're grossly over-applying nitrogen. And, Dan, that's where this microbial nitrogen all comes in. It's all about the efficiency and the use of that nitrogen. So how exactly does the Pivot Bio microbial nitrogen achieve that? So, so what we've done at Pivot Bio is we've taken microbes that we know have the ability to fix nitrogen. That means they can take atmospheric nitrogen, turn it into an ammoniacal form of nitrogen that plants can use. Um, so we've identified those. We've also gene edited those so that they will actually work in the presence of nitrogen and not be repressed or shut down in the presence of nitrogen. Uh, so we force them to work, even in the presence of nitrogen, and we ask those microbes to make enough nitrogen for themselves and force them to share some of that extra nitrogen uh, with the corn crop as well. 
They also colonize the crop roots, which is extremely important. The proximity on the surface of the roots, that means when the nitrogen is made, it's available for immediate uptake by the roots. So the proximity piece is really important. So instead of having nitrogen that may leach below the root zone or not be available to the roots, you've got nitrogen on the roots all the time. Dan, you've also talked a lot today about that variability year to year, both with traditional nitrogen, but also how does that apply to the microbial nitrogen, where it might look like one year you didn't have the best results necessarily, but then the next year they pump, they bump right back up, and you're doing the same things. Well, uh, you've got to think about it like this. The microbes we are placed in the soil around the seed or on the seed. They will colonize the plant roots when they come out. And more than likely, in most cases, they're going to fix and make nitrogen, and that nitrogen is going to end up in the plant. We've documented that countless times on thousands of fields and millions of acres, uh, the effect that it has on the plant. So we know that it makes the nitrogen, it ends up in the plant. When you are able to see a large yield difference with these microbes, tend to be either places in the field or during years where you have high nitrogen loss. For example, you may have this wet area of the field that loses a lot of nitrogen to denitrification. You may have a 10-15 bushel response to the microbe in that spot. Then you may have another spot in the field where the microbe, you can only measure 2 to 3 bushel response. And the collective effect is the average effect across the whole field. That can be a year effect from one year to the next, like we showed in some of our data from Purdue University, where you had a small effect one year and a large effect the next year. One year we lost a lot of nitrogen to leaching. The next year we lost essentially none. So the measurable yield difference was, was noticeably different. But what the microbe did and the nitrogen that it made is essentially the same. It's still there, still making the same nitrogen, still doing what it's supposed to do. It's just you're going to have a bigger measurable yield difference in years where you have a lot of nitrogen loss. So that yield difference doesn't mean anything about the consistency of the product from pivot bite. That's correct. The, the microbe, if it colonizes, it's going to fix nitrogen. It's going to provide that nitrogen to the plant. Some years the plant's going to need that extra nitrogen more than others. Or in some spots in the field, it's going to need that extra nitrogen more than others. And then, Dan, we'll wrap up with what you wrapped up with, which was a very cool study from Iowa State University. Could you explain the new ways that they are using to capture some data? Sure. At, at Iowa State, we partner with them and the Iowa uh, Nutrient Education Research Council several years back to, to help Iowa State design um, a, a new system of measuring nitrate and phosphate leaching. So basically, they they built what we call steel box mesocosms. So they're, they're four foot square, four foot deep, undisturbed soil cores, and those boxes give them the ability to accurately measure everything that goes through that soil core profile. And what we found there with uh, proven treated plots is that we're measuring noticeably less nitrate leaching out of the bottom of the boxes. So not only are we providing a source right on the roots that we know is likely getting into the plant, has a positive effect on the plant, that positive growth effect is probably also helping that plant extract more nitrate out of those boxes, which ends up with less leaching for the environment, which is a really, really positive finding for us uh, in, in partnership with Iowa State. He is Dan Poston. We are here at Pivot Bio Farm Progress 2023. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. A lot of great information. Really excited to take this all in today. Thank you for having me. 
And that was Dan Poston of Pivot Bio. Coming up next in segment number three, Riley Smith will wrap up this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. You're listening to the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag Matters. September means that harvest is about to begin in Iowa. The 2023 growing season has provided a lot of challenges with heat and drought for many parts of the state. But as always, there are excellent crops across Iowa that are ready to be harvested. It is very important to exercise safety during this essential part of a producer's year. Take the time to follow all safety instructions while harvesting so that you can take pride in the results of this year's hard work. Safety should be your number one priority when working to harvest this year's crop. Have a safe harvest from all of us at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. We're here with Joe Heinrich. He's the uh, with the carbon. Uh, I'm going to start over on that. Oh my gosh, Joe. <laughs> That's okay. A bit of a bit of a brain fuzz today. All right. I forget. Do I want to say president of Smart Carbon or CEO? Executive director. Yeah. Executive, executive director. director. I, I, I can always. Uh, okay. There we go. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Well, we're here with Joe Heinrich. He's the executive director of the Smart Carbon Network. Joe, we've talked a few times here on the network already. Great to catch up with you. Uh, just first off, uh, first off, give us just maybe a bit of a state of the industry, what you've been hearing from farmers on carbon uh, markets and that marketplace in general right now. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Uh, as I've gone around, we, like you know, you and I have talked, we, we launched in May and I've been across our footprint. Uh, it's across the Midwest is what our, we're based uh, from Illinois, Iowa, South Dakota, Nebraska, getting into Minnesota, be going to a couple other states after that. And there's a, people really want to talk about it, but there's so much emotion around it. They're kind of nervous to bring it up. And I guess that's the best way I can summarize it. Uh, have great discussions. Uh, you have some very much for it. You have some very much against it. And you have this vast middle that just wants to have more information, understand why we need it. Uh, what are the concerns when you're talking the land, the, the property rights, the safety, those things? They just, they're wanting answers on that. And then why is it a benefit to the Midwest? And so had some really great conversations from legislative leaders uh, down to area chamber of commerces and uh, high school kids even. So it's, uh, we're hitting pretty broad spectrum. And of course you mentioned that uh, side of the, the emotional side of things where that can really take an effect. And I'm kind of curious now hearing of the uh, in South Dakota, you know, the denial, very speedy denial of navigator permits, uh, of course, a summit going on there as well. Just talk us through that and uh, what is going on with that situation. Yeah, that it, for those of you who ha- haven't caught all the information on that, the navigator spent, I think it was like three weeks up there kind of laying out their case. And um, yeah, and then the PUC is what it's called up there, Public Utilities Council, I believe it is. PUC, we call it. Uh, it's the same as Iowa's IUB, uh, just a different name. And anyhow, they came back and said that they weren't comfortable, that uh, they had all the answers they needed to make a decision. Uh, and so Navigator is right now deciding what they want to do next, how they're going to proceed. Uh, I don't have an answer for that because we don't, you know, we don't work with them other than when we have a question that is specific to the pipelines when we ask them. So um, not sure what they're going to do. Summit was really interesting because then basically when, and, and it was all about the county, um, county setbacks that 
some of the counties up there had actually done setback distances. And the PUC up there said that that overrides state and federal regulation. So that's a lot of what happened was because then both of them had said they couldn't work their plan with those those kind of local those local regulations, and so uh, Navigator was the first one, and then Summit went really fast because they said, "Well, it's not going to work the way it is," and so uh, Summit was you know doing the same thing. I'm sure right now trying to figure out where to go next, and and it really gives us a time to discuss this whole thing more. There's so many questions, uh, a lot of fear involved with it as far as what does it entail. And, but there's a lot of opportunity and we just have, we need to talk about the whole picture of carbon capture beyond the transportation system. Uh, we have to work through that transportation system and figure out the answers to those, make sure those questions are answered. But we have a vast opportunity in the Midwest for carbon capture uh, opportunities within it. And of course, Iowa having its summit hearings as well. Is it a different story perhaps in Iowa? Is there maybe a little more acceptance, maybe a few more open ears when it comes to discussing carbon capture? Uh, it's a different different concerns, I would say. I, I think there's concern in every state. Uh, I really have found there are some that av- are avidly against it, uh, a few that are avidly for it, and then this vast middle that just wants to understand it better. And so I, I think it's the same thing. It's funny that up in South Dakota, a lot of it had to do with property rights. Uh, I forget how many they said, how many uh, court filings they had with Summit already for um, eminent domain. And so that was a big thing up there. The bigger thing I'm hearing in Iowa is land reclamation. And, uh, you know, how are they going to put that ground back? Is it going to be as good as it was before? How long will it, will the land show it when it goes through that, that, you know, that 50 foot stretch doesn't produce as much. Um, it, it, you know, there's property rights involved with it too, but actually I'm, I'm hearing a lot on the land reclamation part of it down here. So it's, you know, every area has a different, uh, concern with it. Then, of course, you know, just thinking again to the emotional side of it, uh, obviously, like you said, you know, when discussing land, a lot of farmers want to make sure just it's, it's almost like an integrity deal and to make sure the integrity of the land is still there. And they might just be worried in general uh, on just, like you said, you know, maintaining that land, making sure it's still functional, still operates as a farm. But obviously, you guys are able to uh, have those discussions. And there's a lot of things that can be talked about when it comes to those our carbon capture pipelines and there are systems in place to kind of help them with that. Right. Yes, there is. And, and I get it. You know, I, we farm over here for those of you who don't know me, we, I farm with a nephew and son-in-law, uh, diversified beef, dairy and crop operation. And, um, I get it when we talk about the land reclamation part, we talk about the property rights when they come in and talk to it. We have, we have a electric high line that runs through some of our own land, uh, we have a pipeline on one of the farms we rent. So we've been through that. We we understand the concerns. And really how I've been saying it is that fa- that farm is, that land is part of the family. So when you're cutting through that land, you're cutting through part of the family. So you have to make sure it's done right, it's put back correctly, and then it's for a good reason. And those are all questions that need to be answered by folks like me, by those um companies that are going to put those pipes in 
we need to have that discussion, but there's some good answers. I challenge the landowners to listen to the answers. Uh, that's where we're kind of at. But I also challenge the companies and everybody else to have the discussion on it. And, you know, it's it's not a matter of, you know, just allowing the carbon pipeline to go through the carbon capture pipeline and then, you know, trying to recoup yield losses or, or any issues with that land. What you're looking at is you're getting benefits from having that pipeline there too, right? Yes, you, you really are. And that's where I, I challenge everybody to just listen to the whole process because I say there's benefits to agriculture and the rural communities uh, now and in, well into the future. Today, it's obviously with the ethanol. Uh, to be able to produce low-carbon ethanol, be competitive in that market, get that premium for the ethanol is going to help those producers in this in each state. Uh, it also is going to help those rural communities that have the ethanol plants. But down the road, we, as we look at this, as we look at to, to make it into a commodity, uh, we can see where uh, industries wanting to figure out how to use this for products. And that's that long term. If we can, as they develop those products, if we can have them develop it in the Midwest, put those industries and their factories and, and their businesses in the Midwest, that helps our rural development. And that's just vital that we do that. Joe, lots of great information today for those of our listeners and viewers who would like to get in touch and find more of that information on uh, carbon capture pipelines and open up those discussions. How can they get in touch with the Smart Carbon Network? Oh, by all means, uh, smartcarbonnetwork.com. You can read what we're doing, uh, some of the information we have there. Also, if you uh, have questions, leave them. There's a place you can do that. Or if you'd like to visit with me or somebody else of our, our team, uh, don't be afraid to leave that message also, and we'll be glad to reach back to you. So uh, always ready for the discussion. Great talking with you as always, Joe. Look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you so much, and you have a great day. That again was Joe Heinrich, the Executive Director of the Smart Carbon Network. And that wraps up today's episode of Weekend Ag Matters. Thanks again for tuning in. You can listen to this episode and more by going to the podcast tab on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network website at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Mark Magnuson, and Dustin Huffman, I'm Riley Smith, wishing you a great rest of your weekend. Join us again next week for more Weekend Ag Matters. <music>